0: From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI and WGBH Boston. It's Wednesday, March 14th. I'm Marco Werman. The International Criminal Court hands down its first conviction. A human rights activist welcomes the verdict and warns against equating war criminals with monsters.
1: They commit crimes that I abhor, but I don't think it's useful for us to categorize them as monsters or as evil. I think it makes us think that there is an us and a them, and I think there's potentially good and evil in all of us.
0: And later, budget cutbacks in Greece put antiquities at risk. That and more ahead on The World.
2: Our eyes. the world is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com/globalheroes and by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. An African warlord was convicted today of exploiting child soldiers. This case does not involve Joseph Kony, mind you. He's the warlord featured in that web video that's gone viral. The man found guilty today by the International Criminal Court is named Thomas Lubunga. Annika van Woodenberg is with Human Rights Watch, and she's in The Hague in the Netherlands where the verdict was handed down at the International Criminal Court. Annika, who is this guy, Thomas Lubanga, and what was he
1: convicted of? Thomas Lubanga is, was a warlord in uh, northeastern Congo who was the head of one of the armed groups who committed horrific atrocities in a place in Congo called Ituri. And there, his troops committed widespread ethnic massacres, rape, torture, but also recruited and used children in combat. So today, these were the charges before him. It was only related to child soldiers. And the judges found him guilty on both counts of recruiting children and using them in combat. And of course, this is the first ever verdict from the International Criminal Court, which is a bit of a victory for child soldiers everywhere.
0: And given that victory, what was the scene in the courtroom today?
1: You know it was it was somber, it was serious um I've documented Thomas Lubanga's crimes for close to thirteen years now i've I've met the man a number of times I have raised these crimes and other crimes with him, and you know did as much as we can at Human Rights Watch to document thoroughly what he was doing and so today, I have to say it was was a bit of a bittersweet moment for me, right, and I think for some others in the court, because so many people in Ituri suffered. And I would like to have seen Thomas Lubanga be tried with other crimes, with killings, with rape, with torture. And the judges did mention that today, you know, during the course of the trial, there was quite a lot of information that came out about rape and specifically the use of rape against the girl child soldiers. But unfortunately, Lubunga was not charged with those crimes.
0: This is the first verdict for the International Criminal Court, but is this also the first verdict for uh, kind of a mastermind in using child soldiers?
1: It is, actually. This is the first real case where this has been the single set of charges. So often perpetrators are charged with a broad set of crimes, of which child soldiers might be one of them. But this case particularly highlighted child soldiers. And, you know, it it shines a spotlight on, I think, two other individuals. One is General Bosco and Taganda. Now, that is someone who is Lubanga's co-accused. But he is at large. He's currently living in eastern Congo. He's a general in the Congolese army. He wines and dines in the top restaurants in Goma, this city in eastern Congo. We know where he lives. We know where he is every single day. And he has not been arrested. Mm. And I think today's verdict really shines a spotlight. He now needs to be arrested. I would say, and I know I'm sure you want to ask me about this as well, but yeah, of course the, it I, shines a spotlight
0: on Joseph Coney. On
1: Joseph Coney.
0: Well, he's a subject of the video uh, we mentioned earlier that's gone viral on the web and later of the, the Lord's Resistance Army, which has been accused of some of the worst imaginable atrocities involving children. Remind us where Coney is.
1: Kony and the LRA are currently moving between three countries. So they're in northern Congo, they're in the Central African Republic, and in South Sudan. It is assumed that Kony himself is in the Central African Republic on the borders with Congo. So he also remains out there, and I think this verdict is one that sends a stark warning to him, too, because he is also wanted on an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court. He's also wanted for forcefully recruiting children. And today should make him stand up and take notice. The International Criminal Court is out there and is prosecuting and is finding guilty these kinds of crimes.
0: I'm really curious to know, Anika, what your take is on Coney 2012, this incredibly controversial video that's gone completely viral on YouTube. Is a huge surge in awareness about who Coney is and his alleged crimes helpful in the quest to bring him to justice?
1: Look, I've been documenting Joseph Kony's crimes for a good number of years now. I think any attention on him is welcome. This is an individual who's committed horrific atrocities, not just against children, but really brutal killings of civilians, torture of civilians. You know, this is an extremely brutal armed group. The Coney 2012 video does highlight, of course, those crimes and highlights the need to have him arrested, and that is a message that I do agree with. I think it is high time that Joseph Coney is arrested, brought also before the International Criminal Court, to respond to the crimes that he's committed. The solution to that is not easy. You know, in the Coney 2012 film, it does make it look like just arresting Coney is all that's needed. And, of course, it's not. But it is part of the answer to the problem of the Lord's Resistance Army.
0: So given the guilty verdict uh, for Lubanga today in The Hague and the massive buzz around Joseph Coney right now, where do you think this puts the relevance of the International Criminal Court, especially in terms of addressing the plight of child soldiers and the people who manipulate them?
1: Look, I think today showed how relevant the International Criminal Court can be. It has put out this guilty verdict, the first ever individual found guilty before this new court. We've seen the court playing a bigger role in crises like the one in Libya, like Ivory Coast. So I think we're starting to see the impact of the International Criminal Court. Of course, it's only as strong as its member states. And it itself does not have a police force to go out and arrest anyone. And that is, I think, why the attention is required on issues like Kony, on issues like this General Bosco and Saganda, who remains at large and who's also wanted on similar charges. We need the countries that are members of the International Criminal Court to play their bit and to now put resources, to put their intelligence, to put their money where it's needed to ensure such people are arrested.
0: You know, we tend to think of uh, people like Thomas Lubanga, convicted today at the International Criminal Court, as monsters. You actually met him, Annika von Wudenberg. What was he like, and did it give you a window into how somebody like this can actually operate?
1: I certainly don't think Thomas Lubanga is a monster, and I wouldn't say that about many of the warlords I've met. They've made decisions that I disagree with. They commit crimes that I abhor but I don't think it's useful for us to categorize them as monsters or as evil. I think it makes us think that there is an us and a them, and I think there's potentially good and evil in all of us. What I wanna make sure, as someone who is a human rights activist who has documented these kinds of crimes, I believe it's of crucial importance that the world speaks when such crimes occur, and that the world says no, and that the world says these kind of crimes are punishable. When I met Thomas Lubanga, he denied that he was committing any crimes. You know, I remember sitting in his office talking to him about the crimes that had been committed, trying to very much warn him that these crimes were serious crimes and letting him know that we were documenting these kinds of things being committed by his troops. And I spoke to him about child soldiers. And he said, no, no, I have no children in my ranks. Show me where there are children. And we pointed out the window and we said, your bodyguards are children. And he you know, laughed it off by saying, no, no, you can't tell. You know, those kids that you think are 12 years old are 21 years old. And he would try to deny or minimize the crimes. You know, that was the kind of individual he was. He was a charismatic leader, but he did not want to face up to the horrors that he and his troops were committing. And today he was put face to face with that and a very strong guilty verdict unanimously by all the judges.
0: Annika van Woodenberg with Human Rights Watch. She's at The Hague today where the International Criminal Court handed down its first verdict against Thomas Lubanga. Annika, thank you very much indeed.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: The warlord in the web video, Joseph Kony, is linked to a 1995 massacre in the Ugandan town of Atiak. The world's Joyce Hackle visited the town soon after. Her blog post recalling that visit is at theworld.org. It's the end of an epic. Call it the final volume, if you will. The Encyclopedia Britannica has announced it will no longer publish new editions in print. After 244 years, all of its updates will now exist only online. Here's the world's Alex Gallifant on what's being left behind.
3: Earlier today, when my editor assigned me this story, she said, go and talk to someone at a library. I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what that is. She replied, seek and you shall find. Sounding not unlike Kate Blanchett in The Lord of the Rings, which is a really great movie. And here we are, the library. I didn't know what to make of it. I can see chambers extending from a central lobby where volumes of bound paper are stacked side by side. It's most odd. I met a friendly Gandalf-like figure, Norman Erickson. He had a nice full beard and a cart full of what he called books. Erickson is also a historian, so he likes reading old editions of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. My specialty happens to be uh, 19th century Britain. (laughs) And this is to have the old encyclopedias... See the evolution of the book, the evolution of the Encyclopedia, the evolution of the information. This was interesting, I tweeted to my followers. Ericsson was saying that obsolete print editions might not be so obsolete after all. The 1911 Britannica entry for, say, Afghanistan, probably offers some insights into the subject that are absent from the constantly updated online edition. But then there's also another thing that that I worry about. Ericsson reads a lot of apocalyptic fiction. And it's basically, technology ends. <laughs> And what happens when the power goes out? Well, I guess our hard drives could fail. Is there something else? Um, massive die-off, for one.
4: The East Coast is basically one zone of death.
3: I can't believe we've gone from the end of the printed edition (laughs) of the Encyclopedia to massive die-off. Well, that is apocalyptic fiction. (laughs) (laughs) There's another aspect of the printed Encyclopedia Britannica that does seem like it'll be a shame to lose, and that's serendipity. Something that you can kind of replicate online, but not in a particularly tactile way.
5: Anybody who loves a printed word, whether it's a dictionary or an encyclopedia, does enjoy just the casual browsing of an entry and perhaps the entries that are adjacent to it. Rich
3: Ray Scavellan is the chief librarian at the Brooklyn Public Library. And he's right, that kind of skipping across the pages, connecting seemingly unconnected entries in the mind, it can lead to some lovely surprises. Yeah, this uh, predates the mashup. So we played a game. Rich had one volume of the Encyclopedia Britannica, I had another. We picked entries in turn. Okay, you pick one first. Um, Camelot. Camelot, and mine will be... Oh, Apollo
5: program. That makes sense. Sure, there's a John F. Kennedy, uh, absolutely. Baronet. I also have a B, and that's blue cheese. And I assume blue cheese is a a lofty cheese that would be worthy of a baronet's uh, diet, perhaps? Like a Bavarian blue cheese lord. We could probably sit here and, uh, you know, write a screenplay. Do you have time for that? I I really don't. One
3: more thing Rich Ray Scavalan pointed out. The serendipity of a printed book, especially in a library, also comes from looking at the books sitting on the same shelf. I found one next to the Encyclopedia Britannica called Roughner's Allusions. That's allusions with an A. It's a kind of thematic dictionary. Uh, well, given the news about the Encyclopedia, let's look see what they have under Nostalgia. Oh, this is rather lovely. Où sont les neiges d'antan? Where are the snows of yesteryear? Ah, for the world, I'm Alex Canofend.
0: This is P.R.I.
2: The world is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. In Japan today, a series of earthquakes rattled Tokyo and the northeastern part of the country. No damage was reported, but the largest quake off the southern shore of Hokkaido caused a small tsunami. It was yet another reminder of the precariousness of life in Japan, a year after last year's devastating earthquake and tsunami. That disaster hit northern Japan's fishing industry especially hard. Ninety percent of the region's boats were destroyed, and more than 300 ports were heavily damaged. Even before such devastation, the fishing industry in that part of Japan was facing a bleak future. Now, though, some fishermen in the tsunami zone are finding that the disaster created an opportunity to chart a new course. Here's our reporter, Sam Eaton.
6: Last March 11th, Hiramitsu Ito stood on this rocky hillside and watched a wave more than 100 feet tall swallow the shore below, lift his house off its foundation, and slam it into a nearby bridge. Ito says when the massive wave pulled back out to sea, it dragged everything with it. The house, his boat, his fishing gear, his entire aquaculture business, and pretty much everything else in the small fishing village of Ogatsu. Hundreds here died that day, and since then, even more have left for good. A year later, less than a quarter of Ogatsu's 4,000 residents remain. Before the tsunami, this jagged and dramatic stretch of coastline, some 270 miles northeast of Tokyo, was one of the country's biggest sources of shellfish and seaweed. Its long, narrow inlets provided calm waters that were perfect for aquaculture. But it was those same steep inlets that caused the tsunami to reach such incredible heights here and cause such massive damage. In the years since then, government recovery funds for fishermen have been slow to materialize. So those who chose to stay in these isolated villages have largely been left to their own devices. One elderly couple spends their days scavenging the rubble of the town for fishing gear that they might be able to repair and use. The woman says they're among the fortunate because her husband saved their boat by taking it out to sea before the tsunami hit but it was an experience that still haunts him. She says at night, her husband yells out in his sleep. He tells her he wasn't scared, but she says she knows the truth. A year after the disaster, the couple are now able to fish a little, but with no commercial buyers, they've just been selling to friends. For others who used to make a living from the sea here, things don't look much better only a handful of people left in Ogatsu still fish. But for some of those who remain, the disaster has created an odd sort of opportunity, the clean slate of starting over from scratch and doing things differently. Hiramitsu Ito, who watched his house be swept away, says the fishing industry here was in trouble long before the tsunami. At 50 years old, Ito is a relative youngster. A year ago, the average fisherman was more than 60 years old, few children were willing to take over, and the market price for fish and aquaculture products was falling. And so for Ito, and a handful of others, the recovery is less about rebuilding Ogatsu on land. It's about what happens at sea. The rocky coastline here sunk more than three feet during the earthquake, leaving many docks partially submerged. But Ito's has been repaired, And he takes me out on the bay on a cold midwinter morning for a look at his new aquaculture operation. There's nothing unique about this boat the salmon pens, the buoys and lines for growing seaweed, oysters, scallops, sea squirts. What is new is how Ito and his seven other business partners paid for it. We formed a company together, he says. And instead of selling our products through the local fishing cooperative, we're going straight to the consumer. And those consumers are the ones who made it possible for Ito and his partners to start over. The company adopted something similar to the community-supported agriculture model that's become popular in the U.S. They sold memberships and so far have raised more than $300,000, money they've used to buy boats, seed oysters, and new equipment. In return, the 2,500 members, many from as far away as Tokyo, get a share of the harvest. Ito pulls a line of scallops to the side of the boat, plucks one off, and pops it open with a knife for me to try. This is about as fresh as it gets. Okay, here it (laughs) goes. Mmm, it's really good. Ito says by selling these scallops and his other products directly to consumers, he and his partners will make one and a half times what they made before. This isn't the first time that fishermen here have attempted direct sales, but Ito says what makes his venture different is that he brought in marketing experts from Tokyo. The company has adopted a feisty, clenched fist as a logo, and its name, O oh Guts, a play on the name of their village, Ogatsu, represents the group's determination and will to do something new. The company even plans on setting up a shop in Tokyo's famous Tsukiji fish market. All this in a fishing culture that fiercely resists change and shuns any outsiders. I ask Ito if we can go talk to another group of fishermen nearby, and he cringes. Those people are hard to deal with, he says. Ito says he and his partners have encountered a lot of resistance to their new way of doing things, especially from older fishermen who want to keep things the way they were. But even the most stubborn are being forced to innovate in the face of disaster. Members of some of the most traditional fishing communities along this coast have begun a temporary pool system in which they share both the gear that remains and the profits they make. Still, Ito says there's something essential that's missing on the boats of those who criticize his new approach. Young people. Ito's crew these days are both in their 20s. One is a young volunteer who quit his job in pharmaceutical sales to help out, and the other is Ito's 20-year-old nephew, Yuku Miura. Mura says after the tsunami, he quit his job as a hotel chef in Sendai, 50 miles away, so he could join his uncle. Fishing had never appealed to him, and it's not even the money that got him excited about coming back to his hometown. Mura says what attracted him the most is the idea of making something and then interacting directly with the people who are buying and enjoying that product. He says the old system, where fishermen sold to dealers and middlemen, was nothing more than a machine. Like most young people from this part of Japan, Mura had left for better prospects elsewhere. And like his uncle, he also (laughs) lost his family home in the tsunami. But out here, on the same water that took it away, Mura is surprised to find a future for himself he never would have imagined before March 11th of last year.
0: For the world, I'm Sam Eaton, Ogatsu, Japan. Sam brought back some haunting pictures of Ogatsu and some of the people who are working to rebuild the fishing industry there. You can find those images, plus Sam's other stories from Japan, a year after the tsunami, at theworld.org. We have a special edition of The World coming up this Friday dedicated to the veterans coming home from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and its veterans who are driving the coverage. For the last few weeks, we've been asking our online community of vets and their families to share their homecoming stories and the issues they're dealing with. We've had hundreds of responses, but there's still time to take part. If you want to tell your story or share a point of view, text the word RETURN to 69866 on your cell phone, and we'll let you know how to take part. It'll cost no more than a regular text message. Again, that's the word RETURN to 69866. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, the importance of a good breakfast and what that means for the Maasai in Tanzania.
5: They would get up in the morning and have a few cups of two-week-old fermented milk. It was basically like their own plain yogurt. Then they would drink a small amount of cow's blood. That's where they got their protein from. And then they would have some millet porridge. PRI's
2: The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at medtronic.com slash globalheroes.
0: I'm Marco Werman. This is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service. PRI, and WGBH Boston. China's communist leaders aren't exactly a progressive bunch, but Prime Minister Wen Jiabao is more progressive than most, and today he issued a dramatic call for change in China. Wen said the country must press ahead with critical political and economic reforms. The Chinese prime minister spoke at his last scheduled press conference before he steps down next year. The world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay said followed the news conference. Mary Kay, some rather surprising comments from the outgoing Chinese premier, the number three in China's political hierarchy. Uh, give us a sense of the kind of surprising things he said.
7: I think one of the most surprising things was the force with which he said that China needs political reform and needs it soon, that without political reform, economic reform can't move ahead.
4: Now,
8: Now, reform in China has come to a critical stage. Without a successful political structural reform, it is impossible for us to fully institute economic structural reform and the gains we have made in this area may be lost. New problems that have cropped up in China's society will not be fundamentally resolved, and such historical tragedy as the Cultural Revolution may happen again.
0: How significant or unusual are comments like these, Mary Kay?
7: Wen Jiabao has talked about political reform before, but he hasn't put it quite so starkly. The question, what does he mean by political reform, is certainly a valid one. And he actually said the leadership structure needs to be reformed. That's what he said in the lead-up to what we just heard. Mm. But later, when he was asked, when will Chinese be able to elect their own top leaders, he kind of waffled.
0: And if Wen believes so strongly in reform, how come he's done uh, little about it during his nine years as China's premier?
7: China's leadership rules by consensus, or at least by majority, within the top nine people in the Politburo Standing Committee. Wen Jiabao is one of the nine He was in a reformist government in the 1980s. He was in the square with Zhao Ziyang, in fact, when Zhao was kicked out of office. But then Wen managed to survive and work his way back up the leadership structure. And, you know, it seems felt that he could do more good from within than outside. But it turned out that I think history will judge this administration these past nine years, and it will be ten by the time they're through, As one that made great strides in economic growth and in reaching out to new parts of the world, uh, strengthening ties with Africa and Latin America, but also cracking down very hard on free expression and other civil rights at home. And it is an interesting question whether Wen could have done more and chose not to Mm. or whether he did try within that group of nine and just didn't succeed.
0: There was an intriguing sense of humility in in Wen's press conference today. Let's hear another excerpt.
8: Due to incompetent abilities and institutional and other factors, there is still much room for improvement in my work. Although I have never committed any intentional error in my work because of dereliction of duty, As head of the top executive body of the country, I should assume responsibility for the problems that have occurred in China's economy and society during my term of office, for which I feel truly sorry.
0: Mary Kay, should we expect this kind of contrition from an outgoing Chinese premier about what he couldn't accomplish? Or is there something especially surprising about this expression of really near guilt?
7: Wen has long had the persona of being a man of the people, of being Grandpa Wen, of, you know, trying to do his best and maybe sometimes falling short but recognizing that. And people do respond to that. I think that maybe he had an eye to his legacy. This is his last news conference as premier, and, you know, there was this melancholy tone. You know, he was talking about being like an old steed who would continue his journey to the end, about how he hopes the Chinese people will in the end forget him as he fades into oblivion and goes to his eternal rest. It's interesting to think about how he personally feels when he goes to bed at night, about what his legacy is in China, and on balance, how the average Chinese person has fared
0: the world's Beijing correspondent, Mary Kay Magstead, speaking to us about the last news conference given by Chinese Premier Wen Jiabao. Mary Kay, good to speak with you. Thank you.
7: Good to talk to you, too, Marco. Thanks. From
0: Beijing, we shift west to China's border with Kazakhstan. That's where you'll find the answer to our geo-quiz today. We're looking for a mountain range that dominates the region where Kazakhstan, China, and Russia meet. The foothills in eastern Kazakhstan are dotted with ancient burial sites. That's where archaeologists have found spectacular artifacts.
9: They're painted with cinnabar that's red and also covered with gold leaf. So they're colorful, they have a beautiful, exquisite carving style, and then they represent this fantastic animal that was embraced by the nomads.
0: So these artifacts provide a glimpse into how the nomads who once wandered the region lived. Kazakhstan's four national museums have loaned several hundred artifacts to a museum in New York City. We'll speak with a curator there in a few minutes. First, try and name the mountain range that towers over eastern Kazakhstan. If you're looking for artifacts, you can't do much better than Greece. It's rich in priceless art and antiquities, but that also makes it a prime target for looting, robbery, and illegal trade in those antiquities. That's been true for a while, but Greece is going through some hard economic times right now, and government cutbacks are taking a toll on efforts to protect Greek heritage. Just last month, armed men made off with dozens of items from the museum at ancient Olympia. From Athens, here's the world's Clark Boyd.
10: Monuments have no voice they have us. That was the message of the Association of Greek Archeologists at a news conference in Athens today. Despina Koutsoumba, head of the association, said the Greek government is essentially selling the country's cultural heritage because it's not paying to protect it. She said that's leaving the care of the country's antiquities vulnerable.
4: We don't sell our
2: cultural heritage.
10: She said we don't sell our cultural heritage, our history, or our dignity. These are things that are not for sale. Last week, staff at Greece's culture ministry took to the streets in front of the National Archaeological Museum. They warned that austerity measures are affecting their work. Inside the museum, I met a group of women in the café. One of them, Maria Jagaraki, tells me she recently lost her job as a guard. She says she and her friends, also former guards, come here regularly to press for 10 months' back pay.
8: They are unpaid for months. Uh, that is a great problem. I'm waiting more thieves in the museums. They don't care.
10: One group that says it does care about the theft of Greece's patrimony is the police antiquity squad. Dimos Kuzilos is a deputy director in the unit. Kuzilos worked narcotics for 17 years before joining the Antiquities Squad. He says he fell in love immediately with the work. Kouzylos says Greece's troubles are definitely causing an increase in lootings and robberies. The economic crisis, Kouzylos tells me, has changed things a lot. It's driving more people to commit crimes. And the squad, says Kouzylos, is being forced to widen its net of potential suspects. I ask him about the Olympia robbery and about the recent theft of a painting at Greece's National Gallery of Art. These are open wounds, Kuzilos tells me, but I swear to you, both cases will be solved. This is the ancient Agora, the market, in downtown Athens. Greece is a place in which you can't walk five feet without finding an antiquity. They're everywhere. I'm here to meet Jack Davis, director of the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. When you walk through the market, you start to realize how hard it is to guard Greece's antiquities. The Agora is one of more than 1,000 officially listed archaeological sites spread out across all of mainland Greece and a myriad of islands. Davis tells me that small-scale looting and black market trading have always been a problem in Greece, But in recent years, it's only gotten worse. There are operating throughout the Mediterranean now, gangs, organized gangs, criminal gangs, who systematically loot archaeological sites and smuggle finds outside the borders. Add to that, Davis says, that the collectors who are driving the demand these days are mostly from the Far East and the Middle East, and they have no interest in putting the works in museums. We know, and I can't document this, but there are people who can, that there are significant private collections that are maintained secretly, never put on display, and only shown to a privileged few friends. So the fact, you never really become aware that, that in particular individuals have these materials. Students gather outside the new Acropolis Museum here in Athens. Nicholas Serganos is an investigative journalist. He's written extensively on the illegal trade in antiquities. He says that when an antiquity disappears from Greece, something more than the object is lost.
4: Then we lose very, very valuable information because we don't know this masterpiece where it came from. We can't study in a proper way the the, the society that created this masterpiece. The circumstances.
10: Zerganos praises the work of the Greek Antiquity Squad, but he thinks more needs to be done to go after the collectors who are driving the demand. Dimos Kouzylos of the Antiquity Squad agrees, but admits his own department is feeling the economic pinch right now as well. <laughs> Cuts. We've had them too. Our wages and everything, Kouzylos says. But I'm telling you, he adds, we will pay our own expenses if necessary to track these people down. That's how it must be done in these circumstances. For The World, this is Clark Boyd, Athens.
0: We stay with the antiquities theme for the answer to our geo-quiz. We're talking about the nomads who lived in eastern Kazakhstan centuries ago. Archaeologists have found clues about their lifestyle in ancient burial sites, and artifacts from those sites are currently on loan for an exhibit in New York City. It's at New York University's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. Jennifer Chi is a curator there.
9: The first time that I went to Kazakhstan, uh, I went to four of their national museum collections. What I was so struck by is the fact that there in the nomadic art, there's very little human representation, that what you have are primarily representations of animals that are um, seen in the wild, and then fanciful animals, animals that are recreated and given uh, fantastic elements in the minds of the nomads and then depicted.
0: So we posted some photos of the objects that have been found in Central Asia at theworld.org, Jennifer. These include what you call the Jalali treasure of fanciful animal figures. Describe a couple of your favorite pieces for us.
9: Well, within the Zalali treasure, I would have to say that it's the teardrop shaped elements that were part of a belt originally. And these are extraordinary objects covered with gold granulation and interspersed between this granulation are plaques of argoli or mountain sheep. So it's this exquisite combination of very refined gold technique um, with representations of animals. And this would have adorned an elite nomad during the 7th to 6th century B.C.
0: It strikes me that this is pretty unusual for nomads. I I think of nomads as kind of, you know, scrawling on on, on rock with chisels.
9: Well, I I think that that, that's the type of notion that we're trying to dispel with this exhibition. Um, We really want to present a more accurate depiction of um, nomadic culture in eastern Kazakhstan during the first millennium BC. And the elite groups of nomads during this period very much so prized prestige objects that were acquired from foreign neighbors as well as made specifically for nomads. And often these could be made out of gold and of the highest quality.
0: Now, where have archaeologists found these burial mounds uh, where these artifacts came from? They're also called kurgans?
9: Kurgans, yes, or burial mounds. Uh, well, we feature the Pazyryk culture that's based in the Altai Mountain Range on the eastern part of Kazakhstan.
0: So the Altai Mountains, that's the answer to our geo-quiz. Give us the insight as to what these objects provide about nomadic societies that lived around the Altai Mountains.
9: One of the most spectacular sources of information that we have about the Pazirik culture comes from these these burial mounds and because they're buried with these huge mounds of stone frequently the material that was buried under the mounds of stone stayed frozen until it was excavated So we have everything from leather saddles that were used, you know, on the horses that they rode. We have textiles. And in some cases, we even have human remains preserved. And we can even see that the Pazirik people tattooed themselves. So this unusual lens into the material culture of one nomadic group.
0: How far and wide did they travel as nomads?
9: The Paziric culture, it seems, they moved into the highland pastures, into these mountain pasturelands during the summer. And then during the winter, they would go down into the lowlands where they would be herding their sheep and where they would also come together and, and practice more communal style rituals.
0: Tell us about the horses and saddles that have turned up.
9: So horses were a defining element not only of nomadic life but also the number of horses that you had was suggestive of your wealth. So in the most elite burials, you can find 10, 11 horses um, within one burial um, that were sacrificed, but they were also outfitted with an extraordinary range of decorative material, plaques representing animals carved out of wood or out of Siberian red deer horn, decorating their full body. And sometimes they would even be given ibex horns, huge ibex horns made out of wood. So representations of ibex horns um, to transform them into another animal. So I think that's what's so striking is this direct connection in their art with the animal world that is outside of their control.
0: We've got photos at theworld.org, as we said, and of course, The Real Thing on exhibit at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. Jennifer Chi, thank you so much.
9: Thank you for having me.
0: In the modern age, there are more ways than ever to keep up with the world. One, stop by and see us at theworld.org. There you can subscribe to our daily and weekly podcasts. Two, if you missed a story on the show, you can listen on the PRI mobile app for your phone. Three, follow us on Twitter for the latest updates from the show throughout the day. Our Twitter handle is PRI the World, and my Twitter handle is Marco Wurman. And if you can't remember any of that, just go to theworld.org. You're listening to PRI Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World. There's been a rush of new construction for the 2012 London Olympics, and that's meant a lot of construction workers. Turns out, though, many of them were overweight. They ate heavy dinners and skipped breakfast, and they had a lot of accidents. So the Olympics Delivery Authority came up with a plan. According to the Telegraph newspaper, the authority offered workers bowls of porridge, basically oatmeal. And they started having fewer accidents. We spoke with Andrew Zimmern. He's host of the travel channel's Bizarre Foods. He says skipping breakfast or eating an American style meal of eggs, pancakes, and bacon is not a healthy start.
5: The models for breakfast that are the healthiest are the ones that have the proper blend of natural whole grains, proteins, vegetables, and fruits, and what it allows your body to do is to process those foods to draw natural stores of reserves without the crash syndrome that so frequently occurs after that sort of traditional American breakfast. The most incredible breakfast that I've ever seen and and the one that is utilized by the people that have to have the most amount of energy that I've ever come across are with the Maasai, a tribe that I spent a week with living in Tanzania. Mm. They would get up in the morning and have a few cups of two-week-old fermented milk. It was basically like their own plain yogurt. Then they would drink a small amount of cow's blood. That's where they got their protein from. And then they would have some millet porridge. And they would let it cool and roll balls of it. And then they would snack on that all morning long as they were herding their animals. And they were able to maintain their energy all throughout the day on this regimen. I suspect that what's going on in London, and it, and it certainly is a huge issue, whether it's kids getting crabby or or falling asleep or acting out in schools or workers, construction workers in London having more accidents. I really think this is all related to having the wrong type of breakfast. If we give people the protein, the carbohydrate and the fruit based breakfast that is designed for optimum health, you're not going to have those kind of crashes that result in the problems that we're hearing about. Does porridge happen to have some special boosting powers? Well, the the thing about porridge is that it's got the great mix all on its own. I mean, think about it. If you have porridge with a sprinkling of brown sugar, a few raisins, you have a little bit of dairy in there, let's say milk or cream, and you have the whole grains. And remember, oatmeal has a lot of protein in it. You're having a heart-healthy breakfast that's fairly well-balanced Your body can store that and draw on those energy reserves all morning long so that you're not peaking and plummeting, peaking and plummeting. Your body actually is processing the food the way it wants to process foods. You spoke of the Maasai tribespeople
0: who uh, eat a millet porridge for breakfast. How long has porridge been around?
5: Since the days of the hunter-gatherer. I mean, you have to remember that a long time ago, meat was dragged back to caves. Women and children scoured the countryside looking for edible plants and roots. Dining was much simpler.
0: Andrew Zimmern is a chef, a gastronaut, and host of Bizarre Foods on the Travel Channel. Thanks so much for talking to us about porridge. Thank you, sir. South by Southwest is happening this week in Austin, Texas. Many musicians go there in search of a record deal. That would be the mark of a successful South by Southwest. But some artists are just happy to have a gig at the music conference. The subject of our global hit today is from Sierra Leone, and he is happy to be at South by Southwest. Janka Nabe also measures success differently for many musicians. Marissa Neff tells his story.
11: Janka Nabe is known throughout Sierra Leone as the king of boo Bubu music has a very high-energy sound and is traditionally played with bamboo cane flutes and metal pipes.
4: When I started playing music, I started playing reggae, and I just said, oh, let me play my country music, that bubu music, and I started recording it. And one time, they make a competition in Sierra Leone before the war, I win the competition. From then, they started calling me Boo Boo King.
11: As his career as the Boo King was taking off in the 1990s, Sierra Leone was descending into a devastating civil war. Two years into the unrest, Nabe was named his country's Artist of the Year and his debut record won Album of the Year.
4: The campaign for good governance and the human rights Multi-party democracy great at that time, but I mean, I was not enjoying it because the rebels are going everywhere. I'm famous, my name is up there, people think that I got money, and no, because people don't buy the music. John Kennedy be
11: Through bootleg cassettes, Nabe's popularity continued to grow, so much so that Sierra Leone's rebel forces took note. One such fan was Sam Bukhari, a leading member of the RUF, the Revolutionary United Front. He was nicknamed General Mosquito for his brutal ambush tactics. At one point, Janka Nabe became the general's unwitting guest.
4: He got a group that come to me, Three girls, beautiful girls. They say, uh, you are the bubble king? I say, yes. We got a, a gig for you. The money that they're giving us. So I say, okay. We went. Like we play around four o'clock in the morning. I just see people around me with guns. I say, oh, General Mosquito wanted to play for the RAF. I say, what? R.E.F. Where are we going? And then they take me to one town, Kassiri. And they keep me in Kassiri like 17 days. I was scared to death.
11: Luckily, Nabe was finally able to get away. But when the war ended in 2002, Sierra Leone was in tatters. Like so many others, Nabe was forced to seek refuge.
4: Because no cars, we got to walk by foot from the city to um, Guinea. There we take uh, a bus to Conakry. From Conakry now, we started traveling to towards Senegal.
11: From Senegal, he flew to the US to begin a new life. Years later, Nabé connected with an eclectic group of young Brooklyn-based indie rock musicians who were eager to learn boo-boo music. That turned into a band called the Boo-Boo Gang. Back in Sierra Leone, Nabé's band was 11 strong, but the Boo-Boo Gang has just six members, So to make up the difference, several bandmates play more than one instrument at a time.
4: Or The organist play like two, the drum play like three, the bassist play one. I play the drums, you know, the tam-tams. Yeah, it's not so much.
11: It's clear that Jankanabe is ecstatic to be back in the musical saddle again.
4: I don't think nothing will take me out of this because I don't learn no job. I don't know nothing. All I know is music. Why be playing music. In my last breath, I believe that. For the world, I'm Marissa Neff.
0: Janka Nabe will be performing in the Global Fest Showcase at South by Southwest this Friday night. And Marissa will be blogging for The World throughout the conference in Austin. Check in for her news, observations, and updates at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH, I'm Marco Werman. Thank you for listening.
2: The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the United States Institute of Peace, helping to prevent, manage, and resolve violent international conflict, online at USIP.org. The Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs and the PRI Program Fund, whose donors support the critical work of the nonprofit sector, Contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, MacFound.org, and the Carnegie Corporation. PRI,
0: Public Radio
2: International.